Hello, my fanist friends. Welcome to my podcast feed. Powered by ACAS Plus, here's a joke from my son. What did the bum say to the other bum? That's a bummer. You know, not for everyone. Uh, so, uh, look, thanks to everyone who's come to see the previews of Can I Have My Ball Back. It's been going really, really well, and uh, I'm really pleased with how the show's turning out. It's officially on tour now from Wednesday. I'll be at the Leicester Square Theatre. A couple of tickets left. Lots of press coming to that one. It'd be lovely to sell out, but there are a few other London gigs not selling as well. So if you're going to come to London... Maybe look up those other London gigs. And then this week I'll be in St Albans on Thursday, Gloucester on Friday, Chorley on Saturday, which is sold out. You can join the waiting list. And Glasgow on Sunday, two shows. I think the earlier show is sold out. Check with the venue, but the later show has some availability. Come along if you can. If you enjoy these podcasts and like them being free, then the great way to pay me back is to buy a ticket to a show or buy a download or a book from gofasterstripe.com. But you can just keep listening for free as well. That pays me back also. So, you know, no no pressure. But I'd love to see you there. If you just know me from the podcast and don't know me as a stand-up, I'm pretty good as a stand-up. It's a good show. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's only made about seven men faint so far. So, you know, are you brave enough to take the challenge? Let's sit back, relax and enjoy whichever podcast you're listening to now. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome to another Rahanastopper Book Club. Uh, I am delighted to be joined by Ben McIntyre, who's going to be talking to us about his newer book, new paperback book coming out, uh, Cold It's Prisoners of the Castle. Hello, Ben. Hello, Richard. How nice to be on here. Lovely. It's uh, absolutely delighted to have you. I, I'm a fan of your work, although I have to say I've not read a great proportion of it. I realise now as I look at how many books you've done, I read Agent Zigzag <laughs> uh, many years ago when it came out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's some uh, other fantastic books there. Do you want to take us through? A, I mean, there's so many. Well, that's really sweet of you. I mean, I, mean, I guess <laughs> the one that people will remember. With, actually, Agent Zigzag was the first of these sort of spy stories. And then I went on to do a book about Operation Mincemeat, which was the, yes. the, the, the extraordinary Second World War deception operation then made into a film. Um, and then Double Cross, which is the one that that you were mentioning earlier, which is the great sort of D-Day deception. Yes. And then uh, the one other people might know is is The Spy and the Traitor, which is a, a much more modern story, really. That's a Cold War story of a spy called Oleg Gordievsky, who was a KGB officer, recruited by MI6 and then run very successfully for about 10 years uh, until he had to escape from Moscow. So that, that's all, you know, it's great fun <laughs> at the moment. And the other thing is the SAS series, um, which has been made out of, uh, again, one of my one of my earlier books, which is super fun as well. Yeah, I mean, what I like about it, our previous guest, Al Murray, is very interested in the hardware of war and the battles of war, which uh, 
I'm not particularly interested in personally. Uh, although he writes, he writes about them very, very. He does make them interesting, and he does make the make all that side of stuff quite interesting. But uh, you are writing. Uh, you you, don't, you seem to not be as interested in that either. You're interested in sort of the the spying, the intrigue, the prisoners of war, that, yeah. that sort of thing, rather That's than the actual right, battles. Richard. Absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I get rather lost in the sort of hardware and the battles and the tactics and the generals and so on. I'm much more interested in the characters and the yeah. personalities and, in a way, the sort of psychological side of warfare, which it's interesting because, I mean, we all inherited, didn't we, those sort of um, uh, post-war black and white movies on a Sunday afternoon where the war was always presented as a rather simple kind of moral fable of good and evil. Whereas actually yes. war is not like that. And in fact, life isn't like that. And so I, I love those stories that have a bit more sort of psychological depth and intensity to them. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm, you know, it, it is, there is so much depth to it. You're very good at writing in a very, re- you, make, you turn them into novels, really, although they are very historical books as well, and very accurate books, but they read very easily. And so they're, they're very, uh, because the characters are so amazing, I think when you, certainly when you get into spies and prisoners of war, as we'll talk about shortly, um, you know, there are some big, big characters there. So, so it, 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 I can understand why they come out as sort of novelistic, but it, it's, it's uh, it's a it's a lovely writing style. Is that is that something that you went for deliberately to to, to make it readable for the for the yes? I mean, they they you're right. I mean, they are novelistic in the sense that I use certain novel techniques and cliffhangers and those kinds of things. But I'm pretty rig. I'm totally rigorous actually about yeah. factual accuracy. I mean, everything described in these books is true. You know, if I say it smelled of croissant that morning and the birds were singing, <laughs> that's because I know it did. You know, I've got a source yes. that tells me that. And I think, funnily enough, I think it's true of the kind of spy genre particularly. Often if you can find the right sort of material, if there's a dense enough um, background, you can write a non-fiction book that feels like a novel because you really have enough material to be able to put in those kind of smaller incidental elements that you would in a novel, but you'd be making them up. The lucky thing for me is I I don't even have to make them up. I mean, spies (laughs) are brilliant in that respect because they are – Although they're supposed to be discreet, actually, they love telling their stories and um, they're brilliant raconteurs in many cases because they live in a kind of imaginative world. And so often, you you, you know, you, you do feel that you're slipping into someone else's imagination, which is fascinating. Yeah, and and I, and again, I like your writing in that it is. I mean, some people deliberately write novelized versions of history, which is fine, of course. But there's no, and he was feeling this, and he was thinking this, unless, of course, there is like a evidence well, for it. So they, it, it, it doesn't read like it doesn't read like a novel in that sense. Yeah, I think one has to be really careful of that because I think the minute you start writing, you start speculating. You know, he must mm-hmm. have felt. You know, he 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 thought. You know, you cannot say that someone thinks something in a nonfiction book unless you actually know that they did and and so for that you are relying on letters diaries personal notes postcards that kind of stuff the kind of warp and weft of history but the minute you start speculating you're writing a novel and yeah. i think readers spot it i think the minute in a non-fiction novel you start you run out of material and you start yeah. imagining what they must have said well they smell a rat and rightly so you have to i think one has to be really careful of that yeah, and and the stories are so amazing. I mean, just like taking Double Cross, which I've list, literally been listening to just before we came in, that the the detail about the the spy who wants to bring a cat with a robe from the continent, <laughs> and and the the British authorities 
don't allow that because of because of rabies laws, which just seems, at, given all the things that are going on, it seems sort of unbelievable. They would it's just go brilliant. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, if you yeah, made that up, <laughs> if you made that up in a novel. People would say, oh, that's far too far-fetched. That would never have happened in reality. That's the wonderful thing about, particularly about, again, about the world of deception and spies and so on, is that you don't have to make it up because they're making it up. That's the whole thing. I mean, I've often thought there is a link between fiction writing and espionage because in both cases, you are creating a fake world, an unreal parallel universe and you're trying to lure people into it that's what novelists do and that really is what spies do i mean double cross is a very good example they set about it as if they were novelists setting up this kind of fake world to try and convince the germans that the attack in uh, on in normandy was going to take place in calais and they really did they set about it as if they were creating a fiction yeah and as for you, as the as the writer, the author of these books, it must be difficult, and and sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't, to work out where the lies end and where where the truth begins. So sometimes you admit that you don't know whether someone was a double or triple agent, or you know, or, where, or why they made the switch. It's you know, it is it must be it must be a kind of swamp to wade through to write about this. It's a challenge, but it's half yeah. the fun actually is trying to work out when your sources are lying to you. I mean, again, that is what espionage is about. You're trying to look somebody in the eye and work out if they're telling you the truth. That is also true of some of these sources. And you have to make a value judgment in the end. You have to work out which you think is the most reliable of these very unreliable narrators of their own lives. And that is, I mean, it's a challenge, but it's also incredibly good fun. I mean, take Eddie Chapman. You were talking about Agent Zigzag. He wrote a memoir after the war about his own life called Triple Cross, of which about two thirds is completely mendacious. I mean, it's totally made up because he thought (laughs) that the official files would never be released. And of course they were. MI5 finally declassified the whole lot. And half the fun is taking the reality of those files and setting them against the kind of the extraordinary fantastical nonsense that he made up about his own life. Yeah, that's terrific. Well, look, let's get on to the, the latest book, Colditz, uh, which I uh, bought for myself for Christmas because I know, knew no one else would, and then read it uh, in two days. I think I read it in Boxing Day and the next day. I read it in two days. Absolutely loved it. I think, again, we're almost the same, we're more or less the same generation, and I think the whole Colditz story has a has a resonance probably for men, uh, men especially in their uh, 50s and 60s because we were brought up on it as as boys the kind of romantic version of it mm. uh the pat reed version of it though i mean I, uh, the tv series uh and the, i remember really wanting the action man cold it's set <laughs> which i yeah, didn't I had, get i had the board game as i'm sure some <laughs> of your you? listeners do the, the yeah. you know the escape from cold it's board game in you know i was brought up in scotland and the rainy days in scotland spent playing this game which can go on for anything up to a week I mean, it's, it's an incredibly <laughs> slow game, but it's great fun. And yeah, no, I grew up on that, that myth as well. Absolutely. And I think it's deeply embedded in our national consciousness, really. It is, what, yeah. it is one of the defining stories of the Second World War. And it became, after the war, a kind of part of British mythology, really. It was a way of dignifying the experience of hundreds of thousands of men who had been captured often very early on in the war and who had spent you know a terrible time during the war and it was a way of telling their story in a way that gave it dignity and meaning and purpose but I don't know about you Richard but I remember pretty early on and I was a teenager when that that black and white tv series came out 
famous black and white TV series on the BBC. <laughs> it was then the most popular drama ever made, believe it or not. One right. third of the entire British population tuned into that appointment viewing every, every amazing, week. Amazing. But I do remember at the time thinking, I wonder how much of this is really true. Sure. I mean, can it can life really have been <laughs> entirely about cheerful chaps with moustaches digging their way to a different sort of victory, you know, through the tunnels <laughs> and, you know, worsting the, the dreaded Hun? And could all the Germans really have been that sadistic and stupid? I, you know, one bought the myth. Yeah. But at the same time, I think I think for me anyway, there was a slight moment of thinking, I can that really be true? <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I did. It's it is interesting because obviously now enough time has passed and everyone uh, is pretty much everyone must be dead now. There might be a few few stragglers surviving, Alas, but we no, can be no. no there, there must be you know we can now be uh, sort of honest, more honest about it. There's another great book uh, if if people are interested about about uh, World War Prisoner of Wars. Uh, Guy Walters has written a fantastic book called The Real Great Escape, which again very similar to to this book uh, with the passage of time. He's allowed himself to look at the truth of what it's like being a prisoner of war, uh, as as you do in this book. Whether everyone joined in, <laughs> whether yeah. it was a good thing, to, whether it was a good thing to do the great escape, and and this this book, uh, the coldest book, uh, is the same in that in that we you you sort of look at the what would be considered the senior, but the actually the more human and realistic things that were were going on. The people who didn't participate, the people who uh, who weren't sort of upper class <laughs> yes yeah i mean look i think it's the case that we are grown up enough as a culture to be able to look at our own myths and say yeah some of that was true some of that was absolutely right and there were incredibly brave people in in Colditz. i mean the great escape i've often thought should be called the great tragedy i mean it was an absolute yeah. disaster yeah. but but you know alongside those kind of chirpy never say die brits there was the whole of human nature inside Colditz. You know, there were there were people who were not made of that kind of obvious, you know, straight timber. There there were there were people who did sit out the war. There were people who decided that they didn't want to escape. And there were there were traitors. There were turncoats. There were, yeah. but there was a whole set of other worlds inside Colditz, and that's what really fascinated me. Is that in addition to the escapes, and the escapes are fantastic. I mean, they are amazingly exciting and great fun to write about. There's another whole world inside there, and that's a world of of class and race and sexuality and yeah. and and betrayal and romance and that you know there's a whole set of other worlds that exist inside Colditz, and that's what makes it so wonderful to write about in a way is it's a sort of enclosed theater i mean there was of course yeah. a theater in Colditz, but but the but the building itself is a kind of enclosed world. And what I really wanted to do was sort of dig into that world and, and find out what it was actually really like. And and it is very different from the black and white world that we inherited. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you pick up you pick up on a few of the, 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 the famous prisoners, uh, Pat Reed, who Pat Reed, who basically was able to mould the I, I hadn't realised to the extent that he moulded it in his image, but also he was he was, you know, he was was he did, did he was he behind the game as well so he made he money was. from yeah yeah so he was making money from Colditz and uh, what I really loved I couldn't find it I was trying to find it online uh, you you talking about him on uh, being on this is your life which sort of is this odd uh, what, I ended up watching the the Doug, Douglas Bader one instead but uh they you know this odd world where they became light entertainment figures almost so they they mm-hmm. I wanted to, you know Pat Reed met up with the 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 Eggers the the the, the ch- his chief sort of uh, uh, 
and then in prison, uh, the, the person in charge of the prison, uh, in This Is Your Life, which was an extraordinary moment. But it's sort of odd to see Douglas Bader mixing with the light entertainment celebrities of the 1970s. <laughs> well, some of them managed to parlay, you know, cold it's into careers. You know, I mean, yes. Pat Reed's a very good example. I mean, he was the first escape officer in cold it's. He actually wasn't in cold it's very long. I mean, he managed to escape after a year and a half. So he, he right. was there a shorter time than almost any of the other prisoners. And yet yeah. after the war, and I don't hold this against him. I mean, good on him. You know, he wrote several books. He patented uh, the board game. He traveled the world kind of giving lectures on Colditz. You know, a place that he hated on sight when he first got into it and then spent the rest of his life thinking and writing about. You know, so yeah. it's um, and he was really the architect of the Colditz legend. I mean, it was it was he who gave the, the lasting impression that everyone in Colditz had been just like him. And and he was one of those irrepressible, probably quite annoying, um, unstoppable people who never, you know, never, never said die, you know, we're always going to get out of here. Cheeky chappy, you know, and, but they weren't all like that. I mean, there were there were great, I mean, Colditz is often presented as if it was a sort of coherent band of brothers. Actually, it was a place deeply divided by politics and nationality and class and race and all the other things that we know exist in society. You know, they are the things that we are interested in today. Psychology, sexuality, you know, behavior, socioeconomic, you know, all those things which we know exist in, in, in society. And they, boy, did they exist inside Colditz. Yeah. And, you know, as well as, I mean, we, we would mention Douglas Bader. I think one of the kind of heroes of the book and, and definitely one of the funniest stories in the books I don't necessarily want to blow because the, in the in the epilogue at the end there's there's a there's a joke there's a there's an end to this relationship that I think is one of the funniest things I've ever read in the history book um, so which I, I, mean, I want people I want people to discover themselves but Alex Ross was the the sort of Batman of Douglas Bader and treated incredibly badly by this by, by and Douglas Bader a national hero and did some amazing things, obviously for disabled people. <laughs> but again, the myth of Douglas Bader is very different than the reality of the man. Absolutely. I mean, Douglas Bader gets a pretty good <laughs> kicking from me in this book. I mean, Douglas Bader was an extraordinary figure. I mean, he was incredibly brave. You know, he lost both his legs in a flying accident before the war. He then became a Spitfire pilot and was captured. I mean, he was an extraordinary poster boy for the Second World War, but he was also a total monster. I mean, he was he was arrogant. He was rude. He was selfish. He was brutally unkind to anybody he thought was of a sort of lower social status than himself. And that particularly went for his Batman. I mean, again, one of the things I didn't know before I started looking at Colditz was that there was this extraordinary social division running right down the middle of the castle. Because yeah. on the one hand, you had officers who made up the majority of the prisoners. But those officers under the Geneva Convention had the right to servants. And so the servants were also prisoners of war, but they were ordinary soldiers. They were privates who were not allowed to escape. So the officers had the right and the privilege to get out <laughs> of the damn place. But the but the ordinary, the orderlies, as they were known, were not allowed to do so. And 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 the story of Alec Ross is fascinating because he was Douglas Bader's um, uh, Batman. And one of his jobs was to carry the legless barder up and down stairs, four flights of stairs every day for his bath, you know, cooked and cleaned and skivvied and looked after him. And Bader never shared any of his kind of superior rations with him. But then when, when, when Alec Ross was told that he was allowed, that he was going home, that he was going to be part of a prisoner swap, Douglas Bader said, no, you're not. He said, you're my lackey. 
And that's what you've come here to be. And that's what you're going to be. And so poor old Ross spent another two years inside Colditz as a result of this. Now, as you say, there is a sort of there is a there is a coda to this story, which I'll leave readers to find out about. But it's pretty shocking. It is pretty shocking. Uh, Let's just say he doesn't say thank you. for. (laughs) (laughs) He definitely doesn't. (laughs) But, you know, uh, Bard is is an interesting character because I think he demonstrates that it is possible to be both heroic and appalling. I mean, the, the, the two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. You can be incredibly brave and at the same time a total bastard. Yeah, and often the myth is more is is more valuable. Certainly in war and in the war and and in a in a in a for the you know for your country, it's it's better to have the story of him being this sort of flawed. I mean, he's sort of flawed hero in in Reach for the Sky, isn't he? Because he's he he loses his legs in a stupid accident, you know, well, where he's showing off. Absolutely. So it's so entirely his own fault. Yeah, which does sort of sort of sums him up. Uh, but yeah, what, what I mean, what a, a brilliant character, but also, you know, and your genius, I think, as a writer, as you discover the other characters and what they represent. I think uh, uh, Mazumdar, the the Indian uh, doctor, I think, is he, is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who uh, who uh, you, you write about a lot and the, the racism that he he experienced within and the suspicion that, that he that, the, that his fellow prisoners held him in just because of his race i think you're right very beautifully and, and that's a that's a fantastic story that i, well, think, it's a I shocking, think most people wouldn't know it's a shocking story that in a way and and part yeah. of it is it, what is so sort of shocking in a way about it is that it's never been told before no i mean this is the story of the only non-white british officer inside colditz who was an indian doctor called as you say barendranath mazumdar um who'd been captured very early on in the war and was told by his fellow officers that he too was not allowed to escape because he was the wrong colour. Uh, he was told that yeah. if you get outside the castle, you know, you'll immediately be picked up because there aren't any Indians in, in Germany, which was completely wrong, actually. There were plenty of Indians right. in Colditz. And uh, Mazumdar, and again, I don't want to give it away, but Mazumdar proves them all wrong in the end. But his story is, is remarkable because one doesn't want to exaggerate it. Not all the officers treated him uh, with racist disdain, but some did. I mean, the truth is he was he was the victim of really appalling prejudice, um, you know, and which was much more prevalent at that point. But I find his story remarkably moving, actually. And his his widow, yeah. bless her, Joan, is is still alive. And uh, he ended up as a doctor in the West Country um, in, in, in Somerset. And she's still there yes. and she speaks so movingly about this story because it's never been told because it didn't fit really with the mythology of Colditz. You know, what it wasn't quite yeah. the legend that we'd all been been brought up. No such character appears in in the mythology. No, it, that is you no. Know, it is that was eye opening. And as as I say, I have I've read about this subject a lot, and I've you know I, re, I actually rewatched the whole BBC series. It was when Love Film was sending DVDs out, <laughs> so it was a little while ago that I, that I watched the whole thing. But I diligently got every DVD sent to me through the post, so I could watch it all. Uh, and, and you know, and I think it's as this book still has it. Still, the the escapes are still fantastic, and that. You know, and the ingenuity—it's—it's it's so admirable and it's admirable and so um, incredible. But obviously, if people are cooped up and thinking, you know, for years and years, they will—they'll find the little gaps that that they can escape by. They'll come up with crazy ideas. I mean, obviously, the the glider that that was being built as much for to pass the time of the guest to genuinely <laughs> escape was like an extraordinary one. The the, the dressing up as the the Franz Joseph uh, guard, the 
commandant with the big moustache was was an incredibly bold uh, es- escape. That's obviously very quite a famous one, but that that almost would have worked had it not been for did they have the wrong colour pass or something? Was, was, <laughs> that's right. I mean, the, yeah, you're you're right. I mean, you look, I don't want to exaggerate this because the the truth is that there is as you say a core of astonishing ingenuity and bravery and resolve going on inside Colditz. I mean they were it's an amazing crucible of creativity absolutely and and one doesn't want to undermine that and and it is really I mean the glider is a brilliant example I mean that was a that was a feat of of engineering quite beyond comprehension really I mean they built the whole damn thing the idea was that First of all, they created a kind of secret workshop in one of the attics by by shortening the length of the attic room by building a false wall. How the Germans didn't spot that the attic had become six <laughs> feet shorter, God only knows. But but the, the glider itself, which was built, was made out of 600 individual pieces of wood, and it was wrapped in mattress ticking, soaked in porridge, um, to give it the right sort of tension on, on the cover. And the idea was that two pilots would climb into it, and then they had built a special kind of runway, which was going to sit on the apex of the longest roof in Colditz, and then with a, with a bath filled with concrete and a series of ropes and pulleys. They were going to drop the bath off the edge of the, of the <laughs> roof and then literally catapult this thing into the air and try and get it to sort of glide far enough across the river that the, that the two pilots could escape. I mean, it might have worked. Yeah. Uh, my suspicion is that it would probably have plummeted uh, as soon as it got off. Because you had to have, I mean, the, the, the different climatic conditions and wind direction that had to be absolutely perfect for this thing to work i mean you know the chances of that working were to my mind pretty low but then again you see what's so interesting about glider is that it wasn't just an engineering project it was a psychological prop if you like i think it it was built in the final months in colditz and i think the, the 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 senior officers very cleverly worked out that it was a way for the whole community to kind of coordinate in this last great creation and then to imagine themselves soaring outside the castle walls so it was kind of an imaginative escape route which i don't i think the senior officers kind of knew it was probably never going to be used um yeah. but it was there to kind of keep them keep them going at the at the most grisly and the most terrifying part of the war yeah jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it blue nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price go to blue com and experience the convenience of shopping blue nile the original online jeweler since 1999 that's blue com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion blue a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Uh, well, yeah, and, and, and unsurprisingly, you're very good on the sort of espionage element as well, which is, you know, the the way they smuggled maps and compasses and whatever into into Colditz and the way they smuggled things uh, in cigar cases. Yes. <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> which this was the thing. Found. I don't know if the readers are ready for this, but one of the one of the important uh, the listeners are ready for it. But one of the more important elements of Escape Kit. Uh, was a sort of um, cigar holder or a cigar-shaped tube uh, known as an arse creeper, which contained, <laughs> which was used uh, for obviously um, uh, to be hidden in in inside the body as a, you know, a receptacle which couldn't be found or with, not without proper search for, for for money and escape kit and maps and so on and and that was part of what you required to get out of Colditz. I mean the great unsung hero i think of the whole escape story is a man who never set foot inside colditz whose name was um christopher clayton hutton known as clutty who was the inventor uh, for mi9 which was the section of british intelligence responsible for trying to help prisoners of war and and clutty invented thousands of escape gizmos Think you know, yeah. hidden maps, compasses, you know, money, ways of smuggling money into colditz inside board games, concealing, you know, uh, compasses inside walnuts. I mean, he went to extraordinary... I mean, he was completely mad, Clutty. I mean, totally bonkers. <laughs> I mean, he, he did all of this inventing in a kind of homemade laboratory, which he built under his garden in Surrey. I mean, he was absolutely potty. Um, but he... I mean, he really... He was absolutely instrumental in in, in helping hundreds, if not thousands of prisoners, not not to escape from colders, but generally to escape from all the prisoner of war camps. I mean, of the yeah. downed airmen and escaped prisoners who, who did make it back to Britain, more than half were found to be carrying a map made by Clutty, made by Christopher right. Clayton Hutton. I mean, I think yeah. he deserves a book on his own. Yeah, well, you're the man to do it if, they, <laughs> if that's the case. But, you know, there, there is so many, you know, that, I think that's, again, what is what extraordinary about about uh, all of your work really is it is finding all these people who might very well have, you know, never never been known about, generally speaking, uh, who, who you know, I think with all the uh, with all the espionage stuff, uh, with it's such an important part of the war effort and, and such a sort of psychological advantage and often, you know, the, the, the fact that, the, the crack the enigma codes and uh, you mm. know and uh, all, all of that sort of stuff it must have been like a huge part of it so as much as you know obviously the people fighting are, are doing something uh, that's extraordinary and uh, and incredibly brave uh, all these people behind the scenes and often yeah as you say often eccentric <laughs> well i'm i'm kind <laughs> of more interested in those characters you know i yeah. mean I, I've never been that interested in the sort of straight-grained heroes of history, no. you know. And in fact, I don't think there's any such thing. Actually, I don't. I don't think humans are like that. We're all a mixture of kind of, of, of instincts and and personality and character and so on. And I, I, I like this sort of. I'm much more interested in the kind of slightly dodgy figures who who yes. inhabit the kind of periphery of many of our national myths, you know. And, and the spies are particularly like that, you know, spying 
attracts a particular kind of person. And they are not, they don't tend to be sort of, you know, tough guy, butch warriors, although some of them are, you know, they, they tend to be slightly complicated and, and, and contradictory people. And, and that's what's lovely about the espionage stories, I think, is they throw up stories of people who do, as it were, the right thing for the wrong reasons or the yes. wrong thing for the right reasons, you know. I mean, <laughs> and, and, and that's true of both sides. You know, we, sure. we do see the war as being a kind of moral fable Sometimes I think we see it as being a sort of battle, a sort of Manichaean battle between good and evil. And of course it was to some extent. But within that is a much more complicated and much more interesting story about the way ordinary humans behave in a variety of ways when presented with circumstances they can't control. You know, when, when yeah. you know, Colditz, nobody wanted to be in Colditz. Nobody chose that, that, that thing. They were all thrust in there against their, their will. And they all responded in very different ways. You know, I mean, I think that's that's what really intrigued me. What what makes one person an escaper and one person a collaborator? How, what happens inside the dynamic of that world? And how, in a way, more broadly, how do we pass the time? I know that sounds like a strange thing to say, but the experience of Colditz was incredibly boring. Yeah. Um, punctuated by moments of of terror and huge excitement when they were trying to escape. So you've got, and, and oddly enough, I don't want to again. I don't want to belabor this point, but I wrote this book during lockdown. Um, I, I wrote it at a time it was weirdly appropriate to the to, to the subject I was writing about. And and of course, there is a huge difference between being in your own house and having to watch Netflix and order order <laughs> delivery and and being locked up in cold. It's, I'm not saying there's an equivalence there at all. But I think we've all experienced what it is like to have your liberty curtailed, to discover yeah. that you, you, you cannot do what you normally do and that you you are being prevented by by an authority from doing so and uh, funny enough i think that does it is a sort of universe how do you how do you deal with this time that is suddenly thrust on you how did you, and i think there is a sort of question mark there of, of how you respond to to kind of having your liberty restricted it's it's an interesting one i mean i've often wondered what i would have done in cold it's and i suspect yeah and it's a question I ask quite insistently in the book, you know, which of these characters would you have been? I mean, yes. would you have been a sort of Pat Reed scaling down the walls and digging a tunnel? <laughs> or, and I think I would have been one of these. I mean, Colditz had a great library. Yes. You know, I mean, one of the things the Germans provided was a lot of very interesting literature. I think I might have spent most of the war curled up with a good book. I mean, yeah. really? And just waiting for the whole thing to pass <laughs> over. I'm not sure. And you never know. And I think that is the no. thing that makes popular history interesting and exciting is if you can ask the reader what would you do what yeah. in this set well, of how would you have responded thrust into this circumstance i was going to, i was just going to say before we went into this that i think that's what the book is is really great at is making you realize that it, you know because because we see cold it's as an exciting place making you realize the boredom of it but also I mean, obviously, the lack of sex is something that isn't really covered in in the TV series or the films, uh, and and the ways around that are that you can still obviously have sex, and there are still people in the in the, and, and possibly I mean, possibly some, someone possibly managed to have heterosexual sex with a with a dentist assistant, but <laughs> most mostly it wouldn't be heterosexual sex. I think it's yeah. I mean, there was just as much sex in cold it's as you would expect. I mean, what do yeah. you think if you if you lock up? prisoners for, for five years. I mean, what do you think yeah. is going to happen? And there were real love affairs inside Colditz between and between men. And I think I think that is incredibly poignant. Love has a way of of finding itself, even in the most 
appalling circumstances. So, uh, but you're right. I mean, that story does not appear in that those sorts <laughs> of stories do not appear. And yet they are part of human nature. And to pretend yeah. that they're not sort of does it does a violence to the past. We are all human and we all behave in complicated ways. And I think that's I think that's utterly fascinating. It's it's kind of what motivates me in a way to write these books is to try to excavate a little bit deeper into into what what we're like how how, how yeah. we respond i mean you're right though i mean some of it is also weirdly comical the world inside colditz i mean one of the ways that they got round this feeling of impotence uh, you know the fact that they had been captured many of them at the beginning of the war they were professional soldiers who'd been unable to do what they were trained to do you know they felt completely emasculated by that and one of the ways was of course to bait the guards to try and drive the German guards to distraction and the art, and I use the word intentionally, the art of goon baiting reached yes. a kind of ex- goons were the sort of nicknames for the, for the guards reached an extraordinary level. I mean, they would, they, the, the level of imagination that went into <laughs> trying to tease um, the, the prison guards was hilarious because you had to sort of drive them mad, but just short of the point where they would actually open fire. Uh, and my own favorite is the great wasp, goon bait of 1942 which you'll remember Richard which is yes. when they discovered a large wasps nest in one of the castle walls and began um, capturing wasps and then uh, hiding them in in matchboxes having tied to their legs with um, thread and cigarette paper messages which read Deutschland kaputt uh, and then on a given signal uh, during roll call they all released their wasps simultaneously with the idea that this cloud of angry wasps would fly outside the castle and sting Germans and pass on this very important propaganda message. Whether a single wasp ever did that is not known, but it gives you just an idea of the length to which they were prepared to go. Yeah, well, and and, uh, there was a very violent uh, game they would play where everyone was basically smashing each other in pieces and getting injured. So there are lots of different ways of, of passing the time. And I guess the thing, again, that you don't necessarily think in hindsight is that, of course, once you're in there, you don't know you're imprisoned, which is bad enough. But it's not like being in prison for a crime. You don't know how long you're going to be there. You're a young man. It could be potentially your entire life and you might die there anyway, but you might, it might be 20 years you're in prison. It might be, you know, so until it, it became clear that uh, the war was coming to an end, they... They, they would they would have that hanging over them. And then, again, which I, I think you covered brilliantly in this, which, again, I don't think I was really as much aware of, is obviously once they were about to be released and once the Allies were coming for them, there was the chance that the, the Germans would, uh, that the Gestapo might get involved and, and, and take hostages, which they did, or and also that they might be might be killed by the... The guards, and so there's this enormous jeopardy. You tell the story of the of the of the end of Cold. It's incredibly well, I think, uh, of 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 the danger and and the battle for Cold. It's which again, with the sort of very poignant thing about a, a a young German child basically trying to defend the against the incoming forces and dying on the bridge to Cold. It's um, uh, so it, it that's a, that's a, that's an extreme. The end of it is is ext- I mean, and and also the the slave camp that was was nearby to Colditz, which I'd never heard about as well. Uh, incredibly poignant and very, very upsetting and incredible story about uh, what happened to them and the people who ran that factory. Um, yes, I mean, we tend to see, don't we, the war naturally because through the prism of the present, because we know how it ended and we know that yeah. Colditz was liberated and we know that, you know, we know what happened. But of course, 
the people in this is such an obvious point, but it's one we often forget. The people inside Colditz didn't know it was going to end that way, did yeah. not know that they were going to be liberated, did not even really know that the Allies were really going to win. And in the final weeks of Colditz, I mean, there was every probability that the SS was simply going to move in. I mean, these were prominent prisoners. These were people who were particularly valued, if you like, by the Third Reich. There was every possibility that the SS was going to move in and just kill them all and and stage a, a, a last stand inside this huge Gothic castle in East Germany. I mean, that was that was highly likely to happen. But you're right. I mean, then there is that terrible story of the Hungarian Jewish slave labor camp. I mean, there were two camps in Kolditz. There was the camp we all know about, the prisoner of war camp. But there was another camp, which was this slave labor camp on the outskirts of the town where Jewish slave laborers were being worked to death. And to death they were worked. I mean, the average life expectancy inside one of those camps was about a month. Mm. Um, And as the final, I'm not going to I don't want to give anything away, but as no. the final moments of the Colditz story unveil, there is a tragic denouement inside that camp. It becomes it becomes a place of hell. And many of the soldiers inside Colditz were, were deeply shocked to discover the existence of this camp after the war. They did not know it was there. They didn't know that barely a few hundred yards away, people were being systematically murdered. So, oh. So that is... For many of them, that was a huge shock. The German guards maintained that they also were unaware that there had been a sort of a prison, a, a, a labor camp, a slave labor camp there. That is considerably less plausible, in my view. Sure. But the citizens of Colditz, the people who lived, the, the civilians who lived in Colditz, also maintained that they didn't know what was going on in this camp. That is unbelievable. I, I, it simply defies credibility that they could not have been aware that prisoners, uh, slaves were being dragged into that camp by train sort of more or less every day. So, so it's interesting. Yeah. It's just another, it's just another lesson really in a way that we, you know, people remember what they want to remember and they forget what they need to forget. And there is a very selective approach to history. My goodness, we see it today in almost every aspect of life, the way that people are so prepared to remember one part of history and and forget the other. Look at what Putin is up to in Ukraine. Look at what the whole Brexit story was based on. You know, we are are very selective, and, and we manipulate history at our peril. And I think it's, you know, we just have to be really careful about the way that we use the past uh, to try to reframe the present and the future. Yeah. And that's what, you know, that is the, the, the way the cold story is this, you know, jolly upper class people formulating escapes. It's sort of this game between it, it does sort of dis, distract. And I'm glad the book, I'm, I'm glad the book does, you know, do, doesn't shy away from this admittedly absolutely horrible uh, ending. But but it's you know it is it is sort of weird that that's it, understandably because it's it is heroic and it is amazing but it is a distraction from like the worst possible things that humanity is capable of and it you know it's it's sort of even though we've we've experienced it I think it's as a as a species it, it's very hard to believe it happened and it's it, and it's almost impossible to believe it would happen again but of course that's you know it, 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 only a few things need to happen for it to, to happen yeah i think again, that so. is so right richard i mean in a funny way the cold story is you know it sort of encompasses the whole of human behavior from the comic yeah. and the brave and the resolute and the courageous to the to the brutal and the treacherous and the murderer you know that there is there's yeah. you've got it all it's sort of in a funny way cold it's is a kind of is a kind of 
I don't know, a canvas in a way on which on which the whole of of sort of different sorts of human behavior can be painted. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I think that I hope that opens up a different way of looking at the past, too. Yeah, it's it's an incredible book, Ben, and I've really, really loved it. And, uh, you know, as I say, I have read a lot about Coldness and it, it opened my eyes about uh, a lot of stuff. So uh, thank you very much for sharing that with us and talking to us about it. Are you working? I presume you are working on at least another book now. Is that, are you able I am to indeed. tell us what your next yeah. No, I'm hard at work on, a, on another one with another <laughs> killer deadline breathing down my neck. Yeah, no, I'm I'm uh, this is a this is a different story. This is a this is a very exciting more again, a, a story that people will think they know. No, uh, but they really don't actually, and it's um, <laughs> okay. it's one that is sits very firmly in in modern memory. Um, but it's incredibly exciting and great fun and enormously hard work. Um, but I'm <laughs> thoroughly enjoying it. It's 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 great. It's um, so we'll cool. we'll see where that one goes. That that's due for publication in the autumn of 24. So it'll be it'll come okay. out next next year. Great. And I always ask everyone if there's if you're reading anything or is there anything you've read recently yourself that you'd like to recommend to listeners? Well, um, yes, I loved Robert Harris's latest, um, the, the story of the regicides escaping uh, to America after the execution of Charles I. I thought that was terrific. Uh, yeah. Very difficult thing to do. And he does it so brilliantly. He sort of pulls off that trick of wearing his learning very lightly. And it's... Um, you know, I mean, historical novels are very difficult. So I loved that one. I thought I thought that was absolutely super. But these days, I barely have time to read anything outside my own research. So I'm sort of <laughs> yeah. deeply embedded in in all of that. But it's um, yeah, no. So it's it's a busy time at the moment. But there's so much great stuff being published. And one of the lovely things about <laughs> lovely things, one of the better things about the lockdown was that everyone learned to read again. My goodness, yeah. I mean the book sales are, are are right back up there again so the death of the hardback book long heralded by everybody is just not, i'm glad to say just not <laughs> happening oh that's very good news uh, again out of something horrible something there are good things and there are terrible things uh, which is just uh, life i suppose but uh, yeah it is i think the I, I did read the, this book at the at the at the end of last year and i read a lot of books last year and it was the one i think i enjoyed the most out of all the books I read last year. So do grab the, uh, the get the hardback if you can, because it's a nice book, but get the paperback, which is uh, is now out as this goes out, I believe. Uh, thank you very much, Ben. Really, really fascinating to talk to you. Um, and uh, thank you also to Chris Evans, not that one, for all its hard work on getting this together. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. 
Visit ebay.com for terms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks again for listening to the podcast, richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs for all of the information on the tour. Gofasterstripe.com for lots of downloads and books and lots of fun. Thanks for listening. Go and listen to another one. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your friends about the tour. I love you all. I'm out. <laughs>